Welcome market participants to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. The jobs number is out, Congress has kicked the debt ceiling can down the road, and Putin will provide natural gas to Europe. It's time to kick back. But before you do, let's go through a fresh three things. Let's get started. This week our three things are, one, the jobs market is tight, but not strong. And on Jobs Friday, it's important not to equate the two. We'll explain. Two, some investors believe corporate credit risk has been structurally improved. We'll examine the argument. And three, where'd all the growth go? Economic growth forecasts for Q3 have plummeted. Does that come as a surprise to you? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. It's non-farm payrolls day, and we find the discussion around the state of the jobs market to be a bit varied, to say the least. We've heard it described as strong and weak. Maybe the most accurate description came from former New York Fed President Bill Dudley, who described it back in July as, quote, particularly murky, unquote. From a creditor's perspective, we would characterize it as suboptimal, a tight labor market with plenty of room for improvement. The important leap analytically is not to equate tight with strong. The jobs market is undeniably tight. The number of job openings stands at a record high of 10.9 million, according to the most recent release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Consumer sentiment, small business surveys, and the Fed's beige book confirm that jobs are easy to find. The most recent quits rate, 2.7% in July, is at or about all-time highs and well above the long-term average of 1.9%. Wage pressure is starting to build, hitting 3.9% year-over-year in August, according to the Atlanta Fed Wage Growth Tracker. From a creditor's perspective, a strong labor market drives all-important consumer demand, which drives, in turn, corporate earnings. In other words, it's difficult to have strong credit markets without strong labor markets. And clearly, we have strong credit markets with financial conditions indices at or about ideal levels. Does that then suggest we have strong labor markets? No. What's driving credit market performance is the effects of unprecedented fiscal and monetary support. But as those effects wear off, the importance of sustaining economic growth to where labor markets can continue to repair become important to the stability of credit markets. Most would agree that we have not reached a strong labor market, as there remains considerable slack in the story once you peel back the onion. While encouraging that we have relatively strong job growth, a monthly average of 650,000 over the last six months, that's before today's number, there are significant points of concern underpinning the labor situation, namely, the quantum of labor force has been slow to recover, labor participation has been depressed, underemployment is still stubbornly high, and there is clearly a skills mismatch. We elaborate on all of these in our research piece entitled, Tight is Not Strong, Perspectives on a Still Murky Jobs Market, which we published yesterday. It provides insight on today's jobs miss. Pull it up on kbra.com. Our concern as we look forward is that with the economic growth normalizing, i.e. losing the considerable benefits of stimulus, improvement in the labor market runs the risk of stalling out. 
Employers will no longer be hiring at the same rate as was the case when stimulus drove economic growth to three times normal. Zombie companies, many of which are significant employers, will become more vulnerable when life-sustaining support of the government is reduced. And technological innovation and adaptation, generally not job creators, continue their forward march. To creditors, all this serves as a reminder that while significant progress repairing the labor market has been made, returning to pre-pandemic strength is far from a foregone conclusion. All right, on to our second thing, corporate default rates. So we picked up a comment from an investor this past week that credit has to be viewed differently because it has fundamentally changed as a result of the implicit backstop that now supports the asset class, courtesy of the federal government. He was referring, of course, to the Fed stepping in at COVID's darkest hour and peak uncertainty back in March 2020 when it announced that the Fed would be buying corporate credit. No single act did more, in our opinion, to stabilize financial markets than that, setting the stage for one of the great rallies in not just corporate credit, but risk assets in general. The Fed, with not the least bit of hyperbole, now owned credit markets. Of course, we now know that the Fed really didn't buy that much corporate credit through its facilities, and when it discontinued the buying program at the end of 2020, it is now in the process of liquidating its positions in an orderly and gradual manner, markets didn't suffer so much as a hiccup. There was no credit taper tantrum. It doesn't matter, so the reasoning goes. Once you've crossed that line, central bank as investor of last resort, Markets understand that the central bank is standing behind credit markets. And we spoke in an earlier podcast about research Deutsche Bank had done into the broader topic of government support for credit markets in times of stress. It came to the rather bold conclusion that heavy implicit and explicit intervention on the part of governments has lowered the asset class's default rate, suggesting that investors do indeed get paid more for taking default risk than they did previously. And that brings us around to the investor's comment this week. Should we assume default risk has been structurally lowered as a result of quick-on-the-trigger government intervention? Mathematically, the answer is yes. But from a practical standpoint, the answer is no. Let me explain. The answer lies in the nature of the stress. There are two kinds relevant to the discussion. One is good old-fashioned credit cycle risk an economic downturn that happens in the ordinary course of business. The second type of stress is an exogenous shock. September 11th, Lehman's bankruptcy, COVID. Something that threatens the stability of financial markets with a risk that cannot be dimensioned. Obviously, this gets complicated for policymakers. When do you step in? DB's research was quick to point out the downside in all of this. You keep alive zombie companies as you prevent creative destruction from doing its thing. Then there is a self-preservation angle. Not many politicians survive a downturn, especially one where their policies might have had a hand in creating it. Regardless, we can probably agree that over time, there will be a bit of both types of stress. Back to the math. Normal default rate plus intervention default rate equals a lower-than-normal default rate. But how do you invest in a world of black swans? Hard to factor those in, especially if your time horizon is typically and relatively short, as in until your next year end for all those indexers out there. 
So our view is that expecting the government to jump in is a false sense of security. All right, on to our third thing. Where did all the growth go? Admittedly, 2021 has been a strange year in the forecasting business. We started a year with hope and change, vaccines, a more predictable policy framework in Washington, and fresh stimulus. It was all moving toward the roaring 20s redux. Then Delta hit in July, and we had the return to normalcy interrupted again, notwithstanding the fact that 6% GDP growth is anything but normal. Through it all, we knew not only was additional stimulus not forthcoming, the hugely beneficial effects of previous stimulus, true stimulus, the kind from the printing presses that doesn't have to be paid for, would be wearing off over the course of the year. Regular listeners know we've been warning about it all year. We've even branded it, the great deceleration. Well, all of a sudden, it is here. The slowdown seems to be everywhere, and it's been exacerbated by supply chain disruption that has left demand well in excess of supply in so many areas. Food, energy, labor, semiconductor chips, to name but a few. Management conference calls littered with references to shortages and inflation, two things we haven't talked about in decades, so the impact is real. We often keep track of real-time economic developments via the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecasting model. It's running estimate of real GDP growth based on available economic data for the current measured quarter. I always point out, as the good folks at the Atlanta Fed do, that this is not an official forecast. There are no subjective adjustments. It is purely a mathematical model, but it has got some traction in the market. We started paying attention to it in May when it was forecasting Q2 growth as high as 13.6%. As the data softened in the next several months, it came down to 6.4% and the actual print was 6.7%. Well, current forecast for Q3 is, wait for it, 1.3%. That compares to the Bloomberg consensus of 5%. By the way, the initial forecast out July 30th for Q3 GDP growth was 6.1%. So when you look back at the economic releases in September, you can put the pieces together. There was a lot of disappointment all over the place, which you can see in the city economic surprise index, which fell out of bed. We care, of course, because economic slowdown reflects weaker consumer spending, which drives corporate earnings, which drives stocks, which are highly correlated to credit spreads. And slowdown is not just happening in the U.S., China, the other growth engine in the global economy, is going through its own issues as it reinforces its core values. We did notice that Goldman Sachs took down its Q3 GDP forecast for China to 0%. And the Eurozone is the growth leader of all things at 2.2%. That's a Bloomberg consensus number. With all of this as background, imagine our surprise to hear a large private equity firm this past week Talk about the global economy being quite positive and how people are underestimating the strength of said economy coming out of this. That may ultimately be true, time will tell, but the latest read suggests something very different, at least over the near term. You would be wise to take that into consideration. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the jobs market is tight but not strong, as there is considerable slack evident 
and that is holding back economic growth. Two, corporate credit risk arguably has been lowered due to government intervention in times of stress. But I'm not sure I'd invest differently as a result. And three, economic growth forecasts for Q3 have plummeted. We wouldn't assume the post-COVID recovery will necessarily be as strong as many believe. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research, including my piece on the slack in the labor market. See you next week.